0: Good morning. This morning we are going to continue our series on spiritual maturity. As I was praying about this, because our topic this week is love, but I couldn't get past the maturity part so fast. I was thinking about what spiritual maturity is and what it looks like when you're a Christian, but I was also thinking about what Spiritual maturity looks like, uh, Christian maturity looks like, when you're not a Christian. Because I can remember what it looked like to me. Uh, It wasn't so long ago. um, I came to the Lord on uh, January 1st, 1990, about 8.30 at night. And um, as I began to uh, immerse myself in Christian teachings and going to church and so on, I heard a lot of stuff that made me wonder if maybe I had made a mistake. Because I thought I knew what Christianity was when I was not a Christian, and so I figured when I would go to church, I would see that, and it would conform exactly to the way that I had uh, had pictured it. And when it was all this other different stuff, I began to, to wonder just what I had gotten myself into. And I think when it comes to uh, Christian maturity... Uh, any maturity. It's like as, a, as an adult, when you try to explain to your children why they should do certain things, and in the end you say, because I said so, because all the reasons that you give, I mean, what are they going to mean, mean to a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old? And so we're expecting too much of them. And I can remember as a child, maybe you can remember this, that the idea of being an adult and having all of this responsibility, on the one hand, I thought it was going to be great because I could go to bed anytime that I wanted and watch any TV show that I wanted, but I also saw the other things that my parents did, and I thought, I, I don't know if that looks like the kind of life that I want. Because I, I would watch my parents worrying. I remember when my dad got laid off. I remember a couple of other episodes like this. Um, I can remember them when my brother started acting up in 10th grade. My brother went haywire in 10th grade. Seems to be a good age for it, I guess. And um, just trying to figure out, even, even as his, bro- his brother watching my parents... Like, um, I, I don't know what I would do with Mark. I mean, I know, I know well enough. I mean, he's, he's gone berserk. And I don't know how I would what I would do if I were responsible for him. It's one thing to share a room with him. It was another thing to actually try to get him to change his behavior. And as a Christian, when you're a baby Christian, a mother's milk Christian, and you come into the fold, you become a part of the body of Christ, grafted on, you begin to hear a lot of things that just simply don't make any sense to you. And the, the part of faith is, Press on toward it with the with the understanding and the trust and the faith that it will make sense to you in time, that you will be able to grow into it. Now, to so the outside world, spiritual maturity because what spiritual maturity is really is um, actually taking the teachings of God seriously. Isn't that what it is? Uh, so when, when you read about all these things in the Bible and then you say, "Well, these people are actually doing that," you said, "No." Um, when, when I wasn't um, a Christian and people would actually do these things, I, th- I thought, you know, you're taking it too far. You know, these, this is all a good book, but you're taking it too far. One that I can remember in particular, um, remember there was a teaching um, where if uh, somebody says, um, thou fool, you shall be in danger of hellfire. Remember, familiar with that one? And I can remember as a, as a, as a non-believer at the time, I'm thinking, what, what, what is this? I mean, where would, where would I be without insult? I would, it's, it's like the only, it's the only vocabulary I had, and so to, to have that denied me, and to have the freedom to judge people and think to themselves, these are the people that I don't like, these are the people that I don't approve of, these are the people that I don't want to hang out with, I wanted that freedom, and I didn't want to take it away from me, and it also, of course, they're only words. Uh, this was, this came out at the time that, um, right at the time that George Carlin came out, he had, a, he had a record called Class Clown, I don't know if anybody remembers that. And um, he talked about words. They're just words. They don't mean anything. They're just words. Now, he made the, the, the irony of this is he made his living with words and then telling us that they didn't mean anything. Well, why should we pay to see you? Um, but he talked about all these things. And so I, I, bought into, I bought into everything like this. They're just words. I can say anything I want. I don't see what the problem is. We were being taught um, if you are hurt by somebody else it's because you allowed yourself to be. You should be stronger than that. But the intent to hurt me was something that I couldn't quite push aside. And so that was an example about thou fool, about being condemned to hellfire for something so um, innocent, so simple. Uh, struck me as being something like, who can do that? Who can get through life without that attitude towards people? It's as natural as falling off of a log. We judge all the time. Uh, all the time we rank people. Who are the people we like? Who are the people we don't like? Uh, you know, who, This is my like, 19th favorite person. And um, I will treat them better than I treat my 20th favorite person. Um, to the outside world, spiritual maturity looks like fanaticism. Uh, in the church that I grew up in, and the church that I uh, actually received my degree from, there is a lot of pushback against fundamentalism. Uh, We were being taught about fundamentalism and taught to beware of it, and if you could see it in your church, it was your job to root it out or drive it out, Um, convert whatever you had to do because anybody who trusted in the Bible too much was obviously a person who was going to be nothing but trouble to a pastor because they would always want to do things God's way instead of the pastor's way. They would want to always want to do things what the Bible says when, when you would look at the way the world does things and you would say, this is how I was raised. I was taught that these things work. I have seen them work all the time. I don't understand why they won't work in the church. And a fundamentalist was always sort of irritating people by exposing to the light the things of God and saying we were going to take them seriously. When the church, those churches talked about fundamentalism, they meant it as an insult. Now, the normal church, the nominal church, I should say, I call it the wooden church because I'm talking about the building itself, and I sort of ended up kind of liking the double meaning of its being wooden. But the teaching was wooden too. So you have a wooden church, and their attitude towards how you were supposed to be a Christian was what we are in theology call works righteousness. Familiar with that term? I don't want to get too jargonistic here. But as long as you were a good person and you watched your mouth, you didn't cuss too much, you helped the poor, you wrote a couple of checks to the Red Cross once in a while, you were being a good Christian. That's what they wanted to be from Christians. And they, they got that whole idea from a school of thought called rationalism, um, which to them was not an insult, but should have been. Because faith, obviously, is much different than the kind of rationalism that was being applied to people's lives. And in our culture, where rationalism and being rational and being reasonable and being intelligent and being brainy and all these other things are held in such high esteem, to try to tell people that rationalism is a bad thing, try that one out with some of your friends. Because the only option to them is to be irrational. If you're not rational, you're irrational. No, if you're not rational, as far as this is concerned... You have, you're um, acting by faith. The just shall live by faith. And those who don't have faith do not understand how you can live that way. It looks irrational. Rationalism then is held up as an idol instead of as an insult. When we give ourselves to the Lord, when we repent and we give ourselves to God and we then turn ourselves over to him for whatever it is he's going to do with us, and he leads us towards spiritual maturity, what happens is we become increasingly unrecognizable to the unbelieving world. He's not the guy... This is not the guy I knew in high school. I know a lot of folks that can say that about me. It also means that we become increasingly objectionable to the outside world, because they can see and hear... Uh, and feel, oftentimes, our opposition. And they don't like it. It means that we become increasingly useless to the outside world. And it becomes, we become increasingly threatening to the outside world. Spiritual maturity puts you in a position, eventually, of outright opposition to the world that obviously feels like it has to protect its interests and wants to defend it's attitudes. Now, as we grow into maturity, um, I tend to be um, linear in my thinking. Is that fair to say, honey? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've, I'm at step 4B, subsection 4, and ne- next is subsection 5. And that's what you do as you progress through. And so that's, that was the way I was doing things. And I realized what I was trying to do was, um, in my, my sense of maturity, was to move from one place to another place, to mark off my progress, to write it on my calendar, and to think to myself, what a good boy am I? And, of course, the, the kind of uh, maturation that we have is inside. We're not moving from place to place. We are being made into something different. And we are being made into something different. We are not making ourselves something different. We are agreeing and giving ourselves to the Lord through surrender to let him do what he wants to do and we allow him to to go about the work. It is um, not uh, not me, but Christ who lives in me. So our growth is not so much getting bigger, it's going deeper. The Bible I'm reading now is the same Bible I read on January second, 1990. But it means a lot more to me now than it did then. Because... In prayer, and sometimes just sheer repetition, you just go back and back and back. Now, I had a time in my progress towards spiritual maturation. See if you had a time like this. When I opened up the Bible, let's just say Romans, and I would read it, and I'd say, I've read this already. I know this. I'm not seeing anything new. Does that happen to anybody? Am I the only one that's happened to? And you're like, I don't think I. You highlighted it. That's right. So I've I've committed to memory. Uh, All I'm doing is reading the same words over and over again. Uh, That didn't really appeal to me. I went a long time without reading the Bible because I simply figured that I'd already read it all and now I, well, I don't know what I was thinking. Um, Whatever it was, it was wrong. And so going back to the Bible and reading it again and letting it soak in, seeing meanings that we didn't see before, uh, what I was talking about during um, communion, being baptized into Christ, being baptized into his death and resurrection, things, things that clearly are a mystery and will always have uh, a mysterious element about it. We're never going to understand that, this thing as long as we're on this side of the glass. We're looking through a glass, but darkly. We don't see things very clearly. Uh, there was an old hymn that there used to be, Someday it will all be made plain, I haven't heard that in a long time. In fact, I don't even remember the tune. But I will never forget those, those words. Someday, it will all be made plain. It's okay that they're not plain to me now. It's, it's okay to me that I have not learned everything that God knows, because it's impossible for me to do that. All right. Maturity, then, is moving into a realm that is an entire departure from the world you left behind. Love. I have a scripture here. So 1 John 4. Oh, I love 1 John. I love it more and more and more. You know why I didn't like it originally? Because it's little. It's a little book. How, how, how important can it be if it's only a little book? I wanted to read a big book like Romans or, or the two Corinthians. That's a big book. That's a book you can sink your teeth into. If, if John was writing something important... He could have dragged it out more. He could have pumped more stuff in there and made it into a really big book, but it was a little book. Um, God got my attention later on. And this is the kind of thing, exactly the kind of thing that you would read and, if, when you were a Christian at, after one month and go, I get it. And then I can read it now and go, um, no, there's still stuff I don't understand, but it's still worth going deeper. Beloved, let us love one another For love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. There's a sermon series right there. He that loves not knows not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God dwells in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that dwell in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. He's given us his spirit. He has given us his spirit, the spirit of the living God. He has given it to us. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him, and he in God. There's more prepositions. And we have known and believed the love that God hath for us. God is love, and he that dwells in love dwells in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, more about maturity, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man says, I love God, you know what's next, right? And hates his brother. He's a liar. Which is a sin, obviously, false witness. For he that does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And so this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God loves his brother also. The the bringing to bear of spiritual maturity on love. Um... When we look at another person, if we are indwelt by Christ, if we have the mind of Christ, ought we not be increasingly able, as we go deeper into into uh, into God, to be able to see that person the way God sees them, more than we do now? Obviously, we never will. I don't. I don't see myself as God sees me now, and I'll be glad that that. Uh, when God does tell me what he, what he uh, saw in me, by that time I'll be in heaven and I'll already be safe, so I don't have anything to worry about. Um, I can take it now, God, because I know that you're saying this to me in love and that I'm safe. I'm no longer in jeopardy of being cast out. But when we look at other people, the things we see, not always flattering. One of the things that I used to be fond of saying was, I love everybody and I like almost everybody. Um, No. the whole idea of this kind of selectivity, the whole kind of idea of taking away from God who loves us and say, I'm going to treat people the way I want to. I'm not going to listen to you, God. I'm not going to obey you. I'm not going to let you rule over me and make me love this person who I am getting a big kick out of not liking. Because one of the things they used to tell us in counseling was, if you are doing some harmful behavior, if you're doing something like this that's uh, it's either mean-spirited or it's uh, self-damaging or anything like that, one of the things that they always tell you is, what are you getting out of it? You are, it's doing something for you to make you persist in a behavior or an attitude like this. What am I getting out of not liking this person at work? Do I, do I feel superior to him? Do I feel like I do a better job? Do I feel like I'm more worthy What am I getting out of? Is it feeding my ego in some way? To be able to look upon the heart increasingly as we go on is a mark of spiritual Christian maturity when it comes with love. To be able to see Christ between yourself and that person makes it a lot harder to hate them. Or to not like them, or to disrespect them, or to belittle them, or to ignore them. When Christ is between you, when Christ is interposed between you and that person, and you then see with the mind of Christ, with Christ in between you and that person, it it has to change the attitude of a Christian towards that person has to, because I can't look in Christ's face and look and at the same time say something really um, horrible about this person or harbor some resentment. For this person, I can't do it as long as Christ is in front of me. As long as I see Him, I can't do it, because as a mature Christian, I know what Christ did for me, which is also what He did for this other person. We have our preferences. We have things that we like in people. We have things we don't like in people. We have to, we have to give them up. We've used the word surrender a number of times here, in the in the past years. Um, it's one of those things you have to give up. It's not always fun. Um, I am getting something out of my attitudes towards certain people. I, I know who is the last person in my life that I'm going to start loving. I know who that person is right you know, right now. Uh, maybe I should start working on that person first. <laughs> why, why wait? I'm, it's time to tackle this real early rather than wait until I've gotten good at it with people that I only just don't care for, but uh, instead of somebody that I really uh, cannot stand. We've got to give them up. And so it's interesting because, in, in essence, you know, one of the things that happens when we are called to Christ is we are, and we are baptized to Christ, we are baptized into his suffering. Remember that? We're baptized into his suffering. We are part of who Jesus is, everything that he did. And one of those things is that this being made and asked to love, that's almost a form of suffering. It, it's, it's torment to just have to force yourself to like this person or to love this person, to hold this person in high regard, just think of this person in a new light when um, it goes against your very nature, the very nature, of course, that we are supposed to be crucifying. That stuff always sort of comes back in, sneaks in, and sort of uh, hijacks our good intentions and takes us into an area where we can persist in, in our sin and feel like, uh, come up with some justification for, um, for doing so either that it's not, very, it's not very important or that God doesn't like this person either. I've heard that. Um, or something. Love is the heart's effort to satisfy itself. Love goes out and looks at what it is that makes itself better, makes itself bigger, that, that feeds into it. If it's your ego, if it's your sense of accomplishment, if it's your sense of perfectionism, whatever else it might be that you hold, whether it's money or power or influence or whatever it is, is if love is being driven by that, it's corrupt. But it changes when Jesus is in your heart. If love is the heart's efforts to satisfy itself, and Jesus rules in your heart, that's the approach your, your heart is going to take. To do the things that Jesus does or Jesus wants done with those people, to see those people in that particular way, and to actually have that genuine feeling towards them of love. I love this person. I care for this person. I'm seeing things in a way. I'm doing things in a way that I didn't used to do before, before Jesus really reigned there, and I truly surrendered myself to Him and said, whatever you say to do, I trust you. It's the right thing. Uh, it could be hard. It, you know, and there are some things that are hard. I This is hard. There's still people that I went to elementary school with that I can't stand. How long has it been since I've seen these people? Because they said something to me on the playground or they squealed on me to a teacher. I can still remember when Henry Schoenfelder turned me in to my assistant principal and I had to go in detention for something I didn't do. I'm still mad at him. Sorry, Henry. You know, the funny thing is I see him at reunions. I really like him. And yet, what he did to me, just, it taints our relationship. I can't kill it. Um, I haven't surrendered to it altogether. I've been mad at Henry so long, I can't shut it off. It's become a part of who I am. You'll know him instantly if you see him. He's a a fat, bald guy with a beard. (laughs) He is. He really is. (laughs) Maybe that's part of it. We have our um, attitudes that we then have to surrender to. Love needs an object. That's the the nature of love. One of the other things, it's a... um, uh, I thought this was a pretty cool theological concept. It's called perichoresis. And buried in that word is the word core, C-H-O-R, like in choreography. And perichoresis is the pre-existing triune God In this eternal, timeless dance of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there was no creation around them. All they had was each other. And they called it this dance of love as they just simply enjoyed each other's company, the love that they then shared amongst the three. This was um, a a tremendous um, revelation to me about just the nature of love before there was anything else. And so we talk about when God is love, um, not God has love, God feels love, God shows love. God is love. He is the, uh, it's more than just an emotion. There's a power to love that uh, Jesus is telling us about. Love needs an object, though. So even in, during this eternal, timeless dance of love, part of what made it happen was the fact that the, the triune God had two other parts of the, of the uh, trinity, to show love to. And of course then, because that love was perfect, to receive it back. Not because we crave it, not because we made an idol out of it, but because it's our nature to want to be loved. Love just works that way. The way God has given love to us, it just works that way. It does need that object to it in order to bounce back. And that's why unrequited love hurts so much. We can remember and we can think of now people that we just can't get to love us or we think can't get to love us and it can consume us. I go back, um, I go back to school again for this one. There was no reason in the world that Sherry Seacrest shouldn't have loved me. But she didn't. And um, here I am 50, 50 years later Sherry! I just, I don't get it. What else, did I ha- what else would I have to do? And so the idea of unrequited love hurts. And in the body of Christ, there's no such thing as unrequited love. Part of what it is about being the body created by the, the God who is love is that he has used love to bind us together, love to cement um, the building together, to use as the bricks and, and the mortar that holds us all together in the Holy Spirit for the purpose of, of, of fulfilling what it is about human beings that we need by nature, according to the way that God made us. In this body, a person should be able, should should count on coming in and being loved. Whether they've been here since um, 1912 or whether they just came in last week for the first time, I have, I have had a long history of not loving people right away. I need time. At least I tell myself I need time. I need to be around this person. I need to be exposed to this person. I need a chance to build it up. I need a chance to kindle the flame until it finally reaches a point. I'm, I'm typically, um, until until fairly recently, it's been hard for me to love somebody new. Um, and yet, this person came to the body of Christ. This person came to the church. The body of Christ Created by God for the purpose of what? To belong. To worship around like-minded people and to belong. There should be no unrequited love in the church. As people, in closing, as people who are one with Christ, um, to be able to see them the way Jesus sees them. I don't know anything about this person. I don't know anything about their history. As Denise will tell you, it takes me 18 months to learn their name. Maybe two years. It's just not my... I don't know, what is it? I've learned a lot of things, but I'm really slow about learning names. There must be some fundamental disrespect in me or something that hasn't been addressed yet that I have to surrender to the Lord but we're willing to do that because the Lord we love works within us this way. Spiritual maturity is not having to try to love somebody. It's that you have given yourself to the Lord who loves you, pardon me, who first loved you, giving himself to him to be made over in his image, to have the mind of Christ in order to do what it is that he would have us do according to his nature, according to his uh, his very nature, and that is, since God is love, to love people, whether we've known them for ten minutes or forever. And to be no respecter of persons either, by the way. That's a that's another hard one, because we come in and we glom onto the people that we know and that we're close to. We give ourselves over to be able to give ourselves in love for Christ's sake. Maturity lies in having then the mind of Christ working within us to do the things that he wants done, and remembering that Jesus doesn't struggle with these feelings. Uh, Jesus does, doesn't like, like, I, you know, this is a tough one. I'm, I'm having real trouble with this. The Jesus who doesn't struggle with these feelings, who has genuine love for people, is the person, is the one who is in your heart working to, uh, to show love towards these other people. It is, in the end, about the new nature that the Lord gives us when we surrender ourselves to him, And he takes up residence in our heart. Let's pray. Gracious God, we want so much to please you. We hear you telling us that you have for us the the greatest desires of our hearts, that you will fulfill those and provide them for us in in abundance. And so, Lord, we trust you and give ourselves and say, Lord, whatever it is, anything that we are doing, which is denying that love and denying that fulfillment to somebody else, or which is stifling that coming towards us by our behavior or outmoded worldly attitudes, we give them to you, Lord, to be remade by you for your sake, to your glory, uh, that, Lord, then we can live lives uh, worthy of our calling. We pray this in Jesus' name.